Amen. Thank you, Hill Sisters. Appreciate that. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. We've had uh, some nice weather. Need a little bit of rain for the garden, but other than that, everything is going well. The, um, it's pretty amazing how some, sometimes, or if not all the times, God just kind of weaves worship themes and lyrics into the scripture and the message. And, and the second to last song we sang in worship, if I can find it, the, my worth is not found in what I own. That's a, that'll come in handy this morning, thinking about that concept. And also, um, think of these things they sang to us. Think of these things while or as you live in the world. Think of these things as you die to the world. So there, there's, this, there's something happening here in our living. These are concepts that are Christian, that are biblical. They're, they're ways to think. So the Bible tells us how to think. Our passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. And we're going to talk about culture. Because in this passage, there are some cultural conflicts that the Apostle Paul runs into in his attempt and efforts to minister and to preach the gospel. As if there weren't enough problems with ministry and Christian living, we're going to see even more. And we're going to look at sometimes the fact that sparks fly when Christian worldview or worldviews, cultures, behaviors um, crash into each other. If you look at our, our world or the, our county or different, the place that we live, you see people do different things. And it's been said that worldviews determine our values. By the way, I agree with this statement. I think it's just very pithy. Worldviews determine our values. Now, what we value influences our behavior. And our behavior shapes our culture. So there's this flow back and forth. So when you see behavior or when you see a shaped culture, it can be traced back to behavior, which can be traced back to what people value, which can be traced back to what they believe, their assumptions and presuppositions about how the world works. Things, simple things, speak louder than we may think. You go to, um, it's not new anymore, but I'll never forget the, the culture shock of going to a Walmart or a big department store and seeing somebody in broad daylight in pajamas. And not just kids that woke up from a nap. Grown adults. Something shifted in our culture when that happened. Because, like, I was raised that you you have your pajamas, you have your night clothes, and you don't wear your your gritty or your casual night clothes um, out in public. So something as simple as that, the idea of, of dressing comfortable, you know, you got the moon and the star print and everything on your jammies and just going into broad daylight like that. It's, it's, it's a behavior and you can trace it back. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to waste my time doing that right now. But the way that our culture 
lives and acts is based on our behaviors, which are based on what we value. If you, if you go a parking lot and you see that one car as far away from every other car as possible, parked at an angle so nobody can get near it. What does that behavior communicate about perhaps the person that drives that vehicle? Now, there's reasons why we do the things we do. There's reasons why we don't do the things we do. There are reasons why when Noah was praying his prayer this morning, that in the background was the chatter of little children. Lots of little noises coming from little children. There's lots of little children here. There's a reason for that. That that didn't just happen. It can be traced back. This culture of, say, love or appreciation for family, children, marriage can be in our culture, can be chased back, traced back to behavior, to what we value, and what we value is determined by how we think the world looks. So we're going to look at this, um, this, this event or, or, or uh, time period that the Apostle Paul was called to minister in. And he, his beliefs about the gospel and even how it shaped his behavior is actually going to backfire. Romans, the Apostle Paul says in Romans uh, 12.2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to discern what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. There's a pattern to this world. There's a way the world does things, and we were reminded of that in many of our worship songs. And then there's the way God does things, and they're not always in agreement. Sometimes they are, because we're all created in the image of God. But there's not always agreement in these things. So we want to look at how this example in our passage this morning about how culture often plays out in living, and particularly it clashed when the Apostle Paul was engaged in ministry. We have to be careful, I think we'll learn this morning, in taking for granted cultural practices, cultural thinking. They're not always biblical. Even in churches sometimes, a cultural way to behave is not always traced back to biblical thinking and biblical ways. So we don't want to just take for granted that everything that everybody does or the world we live in, our culture does, is okay. We have to assess things. We have to assess our habits, our thoughts, and our practices. A good example of this kind of clash would be, say, in our work ethic. So we, we've seen this before. The Bible tells us to work as unto the Lord. And that means whether the boss is there or not, our main goal, it's nice to please the boss and we want to honor them, of course, but our main goal is to please God in all of our work. So whether the boss is there or watching or not shouldn't change our pace. And yet, how many times have you been at a, a workplace that actually has kind of an ethic of... When the boss is gone, goof off. Because it doesn't really matter what you produce. Unless they're watching you, then you get the reward for it. Otherwise, it's not noticed. What's the purpose? Why exert yourself? So there are cultural clashes that we are confronted with on an everyday 
base. So as a way of introduction, as if all that wasn't an introduction, uh, think about this or maybe finish this saying for me. When in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So rhetorically, if you think about what does that saying mean? Well, if you know the saying, you know that it, it has the idea of when you're in a certain culture, you want to do what that culture does. And it's not necessarily for the purpose of disobedience or betraying your culture. It's behind it is the idea that we want to be respectful and polite to other cultures. And we're, we're in their territory now. And so we don't make our personal demands, but we acquiesce to that. So when in Rome do as the Romans do, or just a lot of times it's just said as when in Rome, because we kind of already know what the meaning is. It's polite to follow the customs and the traditions of the culture that you are in. History says that this term came around the 4th century with one of the church fathers, Augustine, who uh, moved, he was a professor, he was a church father, he moved to Milan, Rome as a professor, and he noticed there were some differences, I believe he moved from North Africa, there were some differences in the church culture. And he noticed that, that his church and the people or the people in his church they don't fast on Sundays. And he was really troubled by that because it was strongly embedded in him and his culture and his faith that you fast on Sundays. So then another church father, uh, St. Ambrose, advised him to do what, to practice what the, uh, the church that you attend practices. To be polite to that. To accommodate the customs of the local church and so he advised Augustine to do the same it's practical advice on Christian liberties we have Christian liberties what do you do when one church has practiced this and another church practices that or when cultures change later in the 8th century uh, Pope Clement the 14th wrote something similar and he was referring to the um, the Roman practice of taking afternoon naps there's a cultural thing Taking an afternoon nap. You know, some cultures to this day, they almost shut down in the afternoons. And there's practical reasons for it, but it's a cultural thing. And so, he, he was saying acquiesce to these things. So, in, in ministry, if you have this, like, strong work ethic, and you want to make every second of the day count, you go to a culture where the Christians there, or the unbelievers there, are taking naps and things, that's just a part of how they fit it into the day, then, then you have to think about your ministry style. You have to think about what are you going to push up against. Should you even try to challenge certain things? So do we find anything in the Bible about how to act in times like this? Not so long ago, when... Corky was teaching us in Galatians 4, verse 12. The Apostle Paul said, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What does that mean? You mean he didn't just go and demand that everybody change and be exactly like him? He acquiesced in some areas in this this Greco-Roman culture 
to the, to the Galatians. So the, the idea behind it is that he has a message that's very important to him, but in order for people to even give him an open door, to befriend him, to listen to him at all, he doesn't want to go in there clashing with everybody about every little thing. So there are practices that he just acquiesces to. John Stott, and I I borrowed this quote from Corky, said, in seeking to win other people for Christ, our end is to make them like us, you know, the same habits, behaviors, love, thinking, because ours comes from the Bible. They want, we want to, them to be like us, but the means to that end is to make ourselves like them. If they are to become one with us in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion. Of course, there's limitations to this. You don't go into another culture and, and do something evil or dishonoring, but there are just differences in people groups around the world, and there's differences even in the churches in Nottoway County. We have different habits and practices here. There's another place where the Apostle Paul says, um, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So how do we understand this? There's times where we have to become, to some degree, within limits, biblical limits, like the people that we want to reach out to and minister. Because then we gain some honor. It, it communicates that we truly care about these people, their, their thoughts, their way of life. And that can give us that respect and that platform can give us an open door to share what is of most importance to us. In this passage, you're going to see where Paul chooses not to conform to cultural ways or practices. And it and sparks fly as a result. And actually, it, it, it kind of backfires on him. But he stands his ground because he sees that his practices and his decisions are rooted in deeply in Christ. They're not just some Christian liberty thing. It's rooted deeply in Christ. Christ. So let's read our text, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, And was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the region of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds." 
As you know, the Apostle Paul, and he does it basically for the rest of this book, he's defending his apostleship. He's defending his true position. He's defending his message. And these false teachers, disguised as true apostles, are, are attempting to win the, the allegiance and the loyalty of to have gained followers, to, to kind of steal Paul's followers and teach them their teachings. Um, to get the praise, the accolades, the money, the support and so forth from them. And in doing so, they completely undermined the gospel. And Paul has kind of pulled out some stops here in this speech because he's doing things that he doesn't usually do. He's speaking facetiously. You know, he says, I robbed the church. You know, obviously he didn't rob the churches. But he's speaking... Uh, their language in the sense that they're accusing him or looking at the scenario as if he robbed other churches uh, for their sake. So there's, there's some things going on here that Paul's fighting against. But in, in essence, what has happened is they have found great fault in his ministry practices, great fault in the, his style of ministry of reaching out to a community with the love of the gospel of Christ. And the truth. So right out on the gate in verse 7, we see that the apostles' practice was to preach the gospel free of charge. That's what he did. And in order to do this, he had to work himself. So he was a tent maker. So he worked on the side as much as he could to provide for himself. And the other way he was able to not charge were... The, the community that he was ministering to at the time was that he got support from other churches outside of that community, and in this case, Macedon. And so they, he, he had, they, they supported him, and he supported himself so that he could preach the gospel. He could stand in the public square and preach and teach and, and not charge a penny. It's free. That was his, that was his personal practice the way he decided to minister to people and he has the christian freedom to do that is it commanded in scripture that anybody who teaches god's word any any missionary any pastor any any professor or lecturing professor of any kind is it a mandate that you cannot teach god's word for a fee absolutely not actually it's a command in scripture for people to compensate ministers of the gospel for their work. So let's look at, just quickly look at some of the tension here where, where Paul might be coming from because he said, I'm doing this because I don't want to be a burden to you. I don't want you to have to lift a finger on my behalf. I don't want it to cost you anything. I just want to give you this free message of the gospel. It's his personal choice to do this. In 1 Timothy five sixteen through 18... You'll see the connection in a section in a second. If any believing women, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wage. 
So ministers, if that's how they have decided they need to make their living, are to be compensated for that. So you have this balance here between, at the same time, we don't want to burden the church when it comes to widows. The first line of offense is, is family and friends to care. The church can't carry all of that burden. The church is the third line of offense, of defense, you might say, of care. Otherwise, how in the world would the church be able to, to minister the gospel if money was flying out in all different directions? So it's tempered. You, you can burden the church. Well, the Apostle Paul's approach was to not burden these Corinthian people in any way. So he made per, personal sacrifices, took on burdens on his own shoulders so that they would not be burdened. He shares his reason for this. Uh, he, he humbles himself that they may be exalted. He humbles himself by uh, not depending on them. He wants to keep them up, and he's willing to, to get dirt under his fingernails so that they can be taught the Word of God. He, may, he selflessly makes it hard on himself to make it easy on others. And you're probably thinking to yourself, well, yeah, that's right in line with biblical teaching. Everything I've read so far or thought about, that's, but that's, isn't that what Scripture teaches? It does. Uh, he's living right in line with what he taught the Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. That's what he's doing. He's practicing the gospel. He's getting out of the way so Christ can be eminent in their lives. I don't want to take any of your money. just want you to listen to this message. And he does it in Christian love. And it backfires on him. See, he wants to honor them, and they take it as dis- a dishonoring act. He wants to show them love, and they don't see it as an act of love. Now, how can somebody pour themselves out and, and make personal sacrifices in this way and not connect? It's because of a different cultural view. It's because this culture values different things in different ways. It feels honored in different ways than the biblical worldview or culture. So this approach of ministry, they don't understand yet, they're not mature yet in the gospel and the knowledge of God, which the Apostle Paul has been talking all about the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because knowing God is what transforms us by the renewing of our, of our minds, right? But they're not there. So they don't, they're not a culture that understands this change of self-exaltation that goes to Christ. I mean, you, or you no longer exalt yourself, you exalt Christ and you lower yourself. And then you got this guy that comes in here and is all about humility and he's not doing anything for himself. He's doing everything for you. And they're not taking it well because in their culture, it's a self-exaltation culture. So they're shaped by their culture, their values here. Because they lack the knowledge of God, they're not, it's not, Paul's sacrifices are not connecting there. 
and it's causing friction. The world says elevate yourself. The gospel says now consider others better than yourselves. Elevate God. So rather than thanking him, they more or less think less of him. And actually, rather than thanking him for his labors, they're insulted in his style of blessing them. It's not a blessing to them. And here's why, and here's where the the conflict comes in. That culture does not value laborers, people that work with their hands. They are looked down upon as lesser people. It's, It's pride and prejudice. So they're looked down upon. Now, here's some of the attitudes. Now, and Paul's a tent maker. He works with his hands. So here's some of the attitude of the culture of the day. Cicero said, Also vulgar and unsuitable for gentlemen are the occupations of all hired workmen whom we pay for their labor, not for their artistic skills. For these men, their pay is itself a recompense for slavery. All craftsmen, too, are engaged in vulgar occupations. For a workshop or factory can have nothing genteel about it. You see how the the, the upper class is looking down. It's a classification of humanity. And somebody who works with their hands, you don't really want to associate with them. They have no place in society. They have no value. Lucian shares a negative estimate of workmen as well. A labor is personally inconspicuous, getting meager and illiberal returns, humble-witted, an insignificant figure in public, neither sought by your friends nor feared by your enemies nor envied by your fellow citizens, nothing but just a labor. One of the swarming rabble, ever cringing to the man above. See the, the classifications? A man who has... Naught but his hands. A man who lives by his hands. You shouldn't have to live by the work of your hands in that culture. If you do, you're just not much to think about. You have no worth here. So you have the Apostle Paul who is living, at least in part, by the work of his hands to bless this these people. And they're like, oh man, I don't know. What kind of honor can we give this person? He's just proving to us that he's a nobody, that he's a nothing. Also, in Greek culture, when you came with a teaching, if you're a tutor or a philosopher, you have content that's supposed to be of value. So if you're not going to charge any money for it, the message is you don't have anything worth saying. And in that culture, you were paid well if you were going to lecture or preach or share your teachings or philosophy, in philosophy, because that was a big philosophy culture. So one scholar says, um, a philosopher could support himself in the ancient world one of, in four different ways. He could charge fees for his teaching. He could enter into the household of a wealthy patron and teach their children or their, anybody in the household. Uh, he could beg. Or he could work. So if you had to work in order to teach, you didn't have anything worth listening to. It was not at all an honorable thing in the eyes of these people. So in that culture, to voluntarily go without, 
to not charge money. It did not make sense at all. So his, his ministry style in one sense was backfiring and not gaining him the respect that he needed in order for them to listen to the message. He's, he comes with this biblical view of being a lowly servant. And there's something that in some cultures they're, they're going to find it difficult when you preach about the glorious risen Lord who had dirt under his fingernails. How can, it, how can he be both? How can he be so worthy of honor when he's just a laborer, a carpenter, he's got dirt under his You want me to worship somebody that has dirt under their fingernails? Sweats? Has to toil? No, he's supposed to be too good for that. He's supposed to be up here in this classification. So you see how worldviews and understanding of what we value shapes even how we may receive certain biblical truths. So the false teachers, obviously, on the other hand, well, they're just receiving all the financial recompense that, they can, that they're afforded. All the accolades, all the special treatment, everything that would go contrary to biblical teaching. In our culture, even affluence. Uh, affluence is supposed to mean something. Affluence is supposed to mean you're probably worth a little more than the person that doesn't have as much as you. You deserve more honor, special treatment. And there are places in our country where the affluent have like their, whole, their own culture. They have those that will come and serve them. And they look down their noses. It's pride and prejudice. They look down their noses at those that don't have what they have. They deserve everything the way they want it. And they got the money to pay for it. People bow down to that. But it's a whole mindset. There's none, none of this lowly, I, I would be glad to carry your coat for you or open the door for you kind of thing. It's nothing but a very demanding mindset. Worth is based on what you have or what you don't have. And in our culture, just like a lot of other cultures, to not spend money that you might have on yourself doesn't make any sense because it's all about displaying yourself, right? Because that's how you get people to just wonder at your greatness. Wow. You drive that, you live there, you own this. You must be worth a lot as a person. It doesn't make sense even if you have it to not spend it and to, to display it. And yet, how interesting it is in the Christian culture where there are people who have lots and lots of money and they do not spend it on themselves. They barely spend it on themselves. They give it to other causes. The total clash, even within our own culture and our own country. Keeping things of value in their proper place. Now, there are plenty of pastors, professors, teachers, people who take minimal wages just so they can advance the kingdom. Uh, professors that I went to at my Bible college, they could have made more at other places, but they said, no, I believe in this and this vision and I want to advance the kingdom in this way, so I'll do without. The Bible says that equating yourself with your personal worth is bondage. 
Christ came to set us free from this kind of wayward thinking because he has bestowed all the honor on us that we could possibly have or conceive. It comes from him, not from people's evaluation of us. So sparks are flying here. And it's not an innocent thing, by the way, what these false teachers are doing. The Apostle Paul makes it clear they are in disguise. They're false, just like the enemy, Satan, who dresses up as an angel of light. He's trying to, to portray himself as something that he's not. And the intention is evil. And the apostles' intentions are not innocent, not naive. This is evil at work. So we see this clash of how we present ourselves and and humility, and, and where do we get our worth? Is it based on our money? Is it based on the work that we do or don't do? Or is it based on what God speaks into our lives? We also see, again, and I'll just go into a little more detail about the money aspect. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So they did not take his free gospel as respect and honor. They actually, they, it may have embarrassed them. Because it was almost, and that's why I used the word rob the other churches. It's almost like, okay, so you're going to take money from other churches, but you're not going to take our money. You're going to insist on teaching us for free. Oh, we're not good enough for you. Our money isn't good enough for you. See how it's twisted? So all of these efforts to show them the tremendous amount of love at his own expense is backfiring. One scholar uh, shows in the ancient world this, this mindset of gifts. You had to be careful with money that you received even when you preached the gospel. He says, the refusal of gifts and services was a refusal of a friendship and dishonored donor. So they may have taken it as if weren't, you're too good to be my friend. You won't take my, my gift and my money. It gets very tricky and complicated. There are cultures that show respect and honor based on gifts that are exchanged and given. There are gift-giving cultures. And if you do not receive a gift, so, so we might ask Christians, say, oh, no, I, couldn't ever, I could never take that. It must have cost you a fortune. And we might be thinking we're doing them a service by being humble and selfless and they could be highly offended because it's a gift-giving culture. Uh, Japan is a gift-giving culture. And I went there one time. And um, as you well know, Japanese people like sushi. I don't like sushi. I've tried it like a few times just to see maybe I like it now. I don't. Not so long ago I tried it again. I don't. I don't like it. Well, in Japan, um, there's Bobby Hill. I was there with Bobby and Shoko and meeting the Pastor Hada and, and, and submerged in the Japanese culture. And it's a gift-giving culture. And they have traditions and norms and politeness and so forth that you, I didn't want to cross. And I was a little nervous because I knew that uh, the, one of the ways they honored you was to serve you if you visited their home. Very fine sushi. So I was like, Bobby, uh, what do I do if he brings out the sushi? Do I have to eat it? And he advised me, uh, I would recommend that you would eat at least one. 
and don't totally refuse it. Because I, you know, I could have said, look, that's a lot of money. I'm not going to like it if I eat it anyway. Feed it to somebody else that would appreciate it. That would have offended them greatly. So I, I ate it. I lived to tell about it. I ate it. I didn't like it. But it was a matter of honor and respect. Things that we have to change sometimes and acquiesce to. There are other things that are more important in my taste buds. It's also possible, so the, the, the Corinthians could have been insulted by this transaction. This, all this cultural clash. The thing about it is, sometimes gifts, even in our culture, come with strings attached too, right? So if you have wealthy people in the Corinthian culture who say, Paul, I'm, wow, I'd like to give you this for your teaching. That could very well mean that now I own you. It could mean that I just gave you so much money that I have expectations on you. There are, there are strings attached. That happens even in our culture, even in our churches. I've heard stories from pastors. There are big givers in certain churches that control the whole thing and try to manipulate the pastors at what they can and can't do based because I'm going to take this money away from you. And this nice standard of living, I hope you're liking it. I hope you're hooked on it because I'll just take the carpet right out from under your feet if you don't do what I tell you to do. And the Apostle Paul refused to be trapped in that way. I'm not going to do it. Because the gospel needs to be preached to all peoples. No matter the class, the race, the money. It needs to go out there. It's a free message. And I, don't, I, I can't be too busy kissing people's hands when I want to be preaching the gospel. One of my favorite um, examples of this kind of patronage is, is Pride and Prejudice. And I don't usually like these kind, those kind of things, but Pride and Prejudice, I got, I've seen it a thousand times because my wife and girls have watched it a thousand times in the house. And just walking by where the TV is from my bedroom to the kitchen, I'd stop and watch a minute, and I'd stop and watch a minute. And just doing that almost my whole life, I actually know the, um, the movie there but obviously there is it's it's people looking down their noses at others for how much how many pounds they have and all that's a very it's a very fun uh book and play and the hill girls were were just in in that play and we went to see it with brought back some good memories but one of my favorite characters in the pride and prejudice a certain one i don't like them all by the way in the movies but this actor pastor collins Pastor Collins, now, he, his big, um, he's under the thumb of Lady, was it Catherine de Berg. And he, she has set him up in this place. He's got it good and he knows it. But he's also pretty much doing everything she tells him to do. And not doing what she tells him not to do. So he ha- he's got that living down. But, oh, he has to, just shrinks right back, you know, shrinks back when she's in, whatever she says. So he's paying the price for it. The pride and the prejudice. These kind of debts can hinder the gospel, can hinder ministry, and the Apostle Paul will not have it. 
And I think it's very telling here that the apostle says, and I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change my method and my style because it's rooted in the person of Christ. This isn't one of these things up in the leaves that are insignificant morally. When it, when it comes to his, his method and his style, he is emulating the humble Savior of Jesus Christ. His mindset, how he looks at people. He's still going to humble himself. He's not going to play their game. Because there are changes, there are things that we simply cannot acquiesce to and, and be like Christ and emulate Christ at the same time. Humility. We have to change our mindset. Now, our culture is a culture of pride, especially in the area of sports. It's just pride displayed. And the more prideful and the more you can talk about yourself, you're looked in a higher light. That is not Christian. There's actually a humble way to be good at things. So there's all this clashing. There's, there's areas where we should not acquiesce because it's rooted and grounded in the gospel and in order to be like Christ. This is how we are to think. The Hill Girls just sang that song. God tells us even what to think. The mental activity. Think on things that are good and kind and virtuous. The worldview determines values and, and values influence behavior and behavior shapes culture. And sometimes if we're going to follow Christ and be His disciples, sparks are going to fly. But I think the challenge is to evaluate, why do I do what I do? Because it, there's a flow and it can be traced back. What is, if somebody looks at my life and how I live, what would they say I value most? Because the Scripture tells us what to value most. Do we value truth? Does our culture value truth? Are we an others-centered culture? Are we an others-centered church? What kind of things do we value? Because the way we behave is based all the way back to what we believe is absolutely true and unmoving and rewarding. Our standard is not the cultures. Our standard is Jesus Christ. He is our head. And in Him we must not compromise. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.